Hello, welcome to the next of the home teaching for economic students at Piggott. Um, going to look at a different new topic this week we haven't covered yet. First of all, just want to re-look back on some of the things that we looked at last week. So we'll start as ever with uh, some definitions. So you should write them down, uh, write down the definitions and then uh, pause this to write down what they are uh, and then I'll go through them. So I would like you to define from behavioural economics and uh, market failures from the last couple of weeks. What is a rational consumer? Uh, where is the social optimum on an externalities diagram? What do we mean by asymmetric information? What are the things that make a quasi-public good? And what do we mean by unintended consequences? So if you pause now and write down those definitions. All right, hopefully you've written those definitions down. So we've got rational consumer. A rational consumer, which um, right-wing economic thinkers, free market economic thinkers, uh, monetarists, you'll learn that they're called, think uh, that people are a rational consumer will have readily available information, perfect knowledge, they will weigh up costs and benefits and they will always make the right decision. Seems pretty unrealistic because in reality it is, but that's what a rational consumer is and that's what we compare things to. The social optimum point on an externalities diagram is where the marginal social cost equals the marginal social benefit. So that's the point we'd be at if we considered those external costs or if the, the individual or the firm involved was made to pay and take account for those external costs. Asymmetric information, so that is where one person or party has uh, greater information than the other. It's usually the, the producer or the, the seller, and they use that asymmetric information, that greater knowledge, to reduce consumer surplus, basically, and extract more money from you. Quasi-public good, if you remember, the two characteristics of a public good are non-rival and non-excludable. So uh, non-excludable means you can't stop someone using it, whether they've paid or, or not. And then non-rival means we could all use it at the same time and it doesn't stop someone else using it. So a quasi-public good uh, is non-excludable, but it's non-rival only up to a point. So traffic, congestion and roads are the best example of that. It's non-excludable because in the short term, if you drive your car, there's no one out there really to check um, if you've paid your road tax, which is very rare. But then it's only non-rival up to a point. Yep, we could all go out and drive, but if we all do it at the same time, then we're just going to be stuck um, in gridlock, which is what your sort of rush hour times are. And then unintended consequences, so that's linked to government failure. So when the government intervene into the market but actually make it worse. Uh, and government and unintended consequences is where that the government intervene and something else or something worse happens than they hadn't anticipated. Um, so there's lots of consequences, uh, lots of examples of that going on at the moment in the news with, with the COVID-19 stuff. Right, so today's topic, we are going to look at economies of scale. Economies of scale for uh, former business students, they might have come across it. But the economies of scale definition is that as output rises, cost per unit decreases. So basically, as the firm gets bigger, its costs per unit, per unit of output goes down. So the bigger the firm, the lower the costs, basically. Um, this is shown on a diagram, so you should obviously, uh, this will be in the email, you should look this up and make your own notes on uh, economics online. But the diagram, you've got uh, cost will be on the y-axis on the left, output will be on the x-axis at the bottom, and then you've got what really looks like a bit of a smiley face. So your smiley face line is showing your average cost. So if you take the two uh, lines on each axis, that should make sense. So you've got... Uh, 
costs on the left hand side, you've got output on the right. Cost divided by output is going to get your average um, cost. So then your average cost is that, that smiley faced line. And you'll notice about the smiley faced line that originally um, the costs are going to be very high. So the cost per unit are very high. If you think why that is, uh, if we think of a factory or a car manufacturer, um, the initial cost, so remember you've got output at the bottom, so output that first car that comes off the production line, that first car of producing that car, the average cost of that car, well there's only one car, so all the costs of the firm are only spread out over that one car. So that's the initial cost of buying the factory, of buying the machinery, um, maybe stocking up on all of the parts. So you've had this huge initial outlay in costs, but then that first car is the only output you've got to divide it over. So that's why average costs generally start at a very high level. Then you produce a second car, so now you're dividing that factory, that um, the, the machinery and everything else by two cars and then three cars. And as you go on, obviously, by hundreds of thousands of cars that big car manufacturers produce every year. So that's why it falls. You're spreading those fixed costs um, across loads and loads of ranges of output. So the bigger the firm is, the more output units you're spreading it over, the cheaper uh, it's going to be per unit. Um, so the, the if you look on the, the av average cost line, it will go down and down and down. So we start sort of in the top left and then it falls down. Um, and then we get to this bottom point. So you've got a, a, the lowest point that it can be, the lowest point your average cost can be. Uh, and that can be called two things. That can be called the minimum efficient scale, MES, um, or productive efficiency. We'll do more on productive efficiency next year. But the minimum efficient scale or productive efficiency, that is the lowest cost per unit. So at that, that level can't get any lower that's the the lowest we can get with all the the current inputs with the current staffing with the current machinery etc we couldn't get a lower cost per unit than that okay then the line starts creeping up so as your, your output is still rising costs per unit are now going up um, and this is called diseconomies of scale which i'm sure you can work out so diseconomies of scale is when your output is rising and so are your average costs. Um, doesn't mean you stop producing because your average costs are going up but you, you're hopefully still receiving more in revenue than you are for, for producing it. So it doesn't mean you don't produce, it just means now the average costs are going up. So that's diseconomies of scale. And that's usually through things uh, like poor communication, miscommunication, um, and almost you can get in each other's way in, in some ways. So you might have too many staff, so people don't know exactly what they're doing. Messages get lost. Um, there might be some, some demotivation of, of staff not knowing their roles. So then your, your cost per unit start going up. Um, this is economies of scale for internal economies of scale. So this is for an individual company, like we said, a particular car company. That says BMW. As BMW increases its output, economies of scale shows that for that firm, its cost per unit will go down. So what we've been discussing so far is internal economies of scale. And one of the um, exam board's favourite questions on this um, is to, to look at big and small firms. So basically, when we when do we reach our productive efficiency? When do we reach that lowest point, that lowest cost point? Um, now, for big firms, your MES or productive efficiency is going to be when you produce a lot of output. So the MES or productive efficiency is going to be a long way to the right away from the origin. If it's a smaller firm, 
um, it's going to be quite close to the origin. It's going to be quite close to the left. Um, re and the reason for that is what I discussed when, when just going through what economies of scale does. Um, if you're a huge firm that's just spent, um, let's, let's stick with BMW. So BMW have just bought a huge new factory, huge new car plant, lots of machinery that goes in it. That's a huge cost. To get the average cost per car down, they're going to have to produce an awful lot of cars to get their value for money, to, to, to use those machines. Um, so that means that the MES, the product efficiency, is going to be very far to the right. So that's, that's what's called a barrier to entry. That's going to be very hard for other firms on the outside thinking, well, should I start going to produce cars? It's pretty tricky to want to go and produce cars if you've got to buy all this huge amount of machinery and, and make these, this huge uh, output of cars. Smaller firms, on the other hand, might have very low startup costs. So, let's say lots of small online retailers or people that you know, small restaurants, maybe small outlets, local outlets. They're not going to have very big startup costs. They're not going to have huge outlays in terms of premises or capital or, or machinery at the start. So, their lowest average cost unit is going to be very low. So that is going to be nearer to the left. It's, they're only going to need to produce a few units of output and they could probably stay at that level of cost. It's going to be very low because they don't have that, that initial output. Uh, another thing they like asking you about, especially in uh, multiple choice, are the types of economy of scale. So, so far I've said that economies of scale is that when a company gets bigger, the cost per unit goes down. Um, but internally there's lots of reasons for this. So one I've mentioned um, so far is what's called technical economies of scale. So technical economies of scale are where you are able to buy bigger machinery. That is better. So a small example from um, our school is that we've now got dotted around the school four or five giant photocopying machines. The initial outlay of those photocopying machines was a lot of money. But then the cost per unit, the cost of photocopying each sheet is much lower than if we had smaller copiers or smaller printers in every classroom. So technical economy of scale is when you can buy better machinery that's going to make you more efficient and lower your costs over time. Uh, you've then got purchasing economies of scale. So if you did this at GCSE, that would be your bulk buying, essentially. And this is the one you should be most familiar with. That if you go into the supermarket, um, you buy a, a six pack of crisps, the cost of that one pack of crisps in the six is lower than if you buy an individual pack of crisps off the shelf so the more you buy the lower it is uh, cost per unit obviously if firms are very big they will buy in bulk um, they will store it uh, as that is purchasing economies of scale uh, you've then got marketing economies of scale so marketing economies of scale are if you're advertising nationwide so let's look at supermarkets um, so every time tesco put an advert on obviously they're not just advertising a tesco in twyford or reading they're advertising all Tesco's, so the cost of advertising per unit is very small for each of those individual branches. Whereas if my local corner shop put a national TV advert out, that is a ginormous cost just on that one firm. They haven't got any more um, outlets to spread it out in. Uh, and the last one is risk-bearing economies of scale, is that basically bigger firms are, they can take risks, it might fail, and if it fails, they can absorb the loss. Whereas if you're a small firm, uh, not so much. Again, a lot of that being seen um, in the in the current crisis, so all of those are internal economies of scale. That's where an individual firm grows bigger. Uh, but then we've also got external economies of scale. And external economies of scale is where the industry as a whole is bigger. So that might mean um, in in our where we live, we've got the, the Thames Valley has got loads and loads of uh, IT and ICT and computer jobs and software jobs. 
famously in America, you've got Silicon Valley, um, where lots of those jobs are. So if the industry grows bigger, that makes it easier for each individual firm to produce, uh, makes it cheaper for them. Uh, one of the best examples of that is staffing. So if a firm as a whole grows, then more people are going to university to do IT, to do software. So there's a bigger pool of staff available. So they're already trained by the time they get to you. If these industries aren't very big, um, then you might have to train your own staff and that raises your own costs. Um, the only other thing to look at with um, economies of scale is um, in the short and long run. So in the short run, um, this is defined in economics, uh, usually economics, there's not, you know, it's not six months, it's not a year. The short run is where at least one factor of production is fixed. So if we go back to the um, BMW example, the factor of production that would be fixed might be the factory because it's hard obviously to build a factory. You can, but it might take a year, might take two years, three years, etc. And then you can add variable factors, which is going to be labour. So if you think back to the economies of scale diagram that I've described, your fixed factor is your factory. So if you want to increase output whilst you've only got one factory, what you would do is add a member of staff. Then you add a second member of staff, third member of staff, etc. And hopefully this would lower your unit costs because um, staff can specialise, they'll be better at their jobs, they can share work workload around. Um, but then at one point, when we get to our productive efficiency, our MES, for, uh, staff might get in each other's way, they might miscommunicate, they might not know what each other's doing. So that's where the diseconomies of scale would kick in. Um, so the short run, you'd have your factory is fixed, at least one factor, which is usually the, the premises. Uh, but then in the long run, all factors of production can change. So if we're looking in the long run, that would mean that we, we could add factories, two, three, four factories, etc. Um, the most likely questions, um, economies of scale, when we do market structures next year and we look at big and small firms, it will come into that. So obviously this is a benefit of big firms. So usually we say a monopoly is a market failure. Well, monopolies are bad. They can charge you a higher price. They'll lower the consumer surplus. Um, but if bigger firms have lower costs, which we've just discussed, they do, well, then they might pass those costs uh, savings on to you in the form of lower prices. So that's one of the benefits, one of the ways to use it. The other most likely questions are multiple choice questions, which I'll discuss a couple of them in a minute. They might ask you about a type of economy of scale. They might ask you about internal or external. They might show two different um, low productive efficiency outputs, but it does crop up in um, multiple choice questions. Right, so on that, there are, uh, I will attach a couple of exam papers to the email this week. Uh, the first one is an AS paper uh, from 2017. Obviously, you don't have to do ASs, but the content is very useful. So from the AS paper attached, obviously, you can do all of the questions. Um, but multiple choice questions, I would look at specifically question one, um, which is about demerit goods. And obviously, we've just covered that. Um, question eight which is about the long run, which I've just discussed. So obviously now you should be able to answer that. Question nine, which asks you about types of economy of scale, which we have just discussed. Um, and then question 21 in the AS paper, this is a, this wouldn't come up now, but it says define internal economies of scale. So can you um, define that? Uh, that's obviously not going to take you very long. That's a pretty, pretty short task. So what I would also like you to do is I've also attached a specimen uh, exam paper I would like you to look at essay two, questions 11 and 12. Um, and again, obviously you can do it if you wish and I'll happily mark anything that comes in, um, but you should plan uh, these two 
questions, question, the 15 mark question and the 25 mark question. So question 11 and question 12, plan them. So for a 15 mark question, um, you will need to define something. You will need to draw a diagram. So say which diagram you would draw and how you would use it. And then you will need to make two clear points, explain uh, with examples. You don't need to evaluate anything in, an 11, uh, in a 25 mark question. So then for the 25 mark question, um, pretty similar to how you, you know we've we've structured 25 mark questions already. You will introduce what you're going to say, define, draw appropriate diagrams. Always draw the the most appropriate diagram first. Explain and use that diagram. Explain the point that you're making. Constantly should have examples. Um, you do need evaluation in this one, so the downsides, and then conclude. So I'll just say what the questions go through. What the questions are. Um, 15 mark question, using examples to illustrate your answer, explain how anchoring and loss aversion can affect individual choices when deciding how to spend or save their income. So obviously you've got to define anchoring and loss aversion, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago under behavioural economics, um, and think of some examples. So think of an example of anchoring or, or look one up. Uh, think of an example of loss aversion, because the key to this question is going to be the examples that you use. How are they used? And then the 25 mark question, the government would like to improve the well-being of the population by encouraging people to adopt a healthy diet. Using your knowledge of both traditional economic theory and behavioural economics, assess alternative policies the government might adopt to try and achieve its objective. Uh, so next year we'll do lots and lots of work of unpacking and unpicking questions. That's uh, three and a half sentences long, uh, that question. Uh, but actually what it's asking is, how do you get people healthier? Simple as that. It's it's how do you get people to be healthier? So you can either get them to do more exercise or you can get them to eat healthier. Um, so what you do is you need to use your strips. So you need to, can, what can you subsidise? What can you tax? What can you regulate? How can you provide inf information? Pollution permit is not valid for this one. Um, and you've got state provision. What could the state provide? So use your strips and it says both traditional economic theory, which is your strips, and behavioural economics. Well, behavioural economics, basically it means what nudges can you use? So what nudges can we use to get people to, to do more exercise? What nudges can we use to get people to eat healthier? Um, and then obviously for each policy that you choose, choose you need to think of an appropriate diagram, but for each policy you choose, um, you need to give an evaluation point and say why the policy might not work. Think about elasticity, think about types of government failure, but it should all be specifically applied. Um, the examples are important to healthy diet and uh, exercise. OK, so I will discuss uh, how you answered that in next week's pod.